with great fucking difficulty. Hello and welcome. I'm Steve. And I'm not really ready for a relationship, Lois, but thanks for asking. <laughs> and I'm Brett. And I'm Alex. And this is Fools with Tools, a podcast for the valuable, very, uh, very, uh, like Terrier. Uh, so, gentlemen, how are we all? Uh, Alex, I know you're the guest, but uh, we are going to skip you until the end. Um, skip, skip to the, the end. end. Hey! Uh, <laughs> because it it's actually a good segue into the topic, so I'm not going to miss that opportunity, because normally I have to kind of crowbar one in. Uh, <laughs> Doing great uh, so Al. far. Al, why don't you start, seeing as you look so disappointed with me? It's like undoing your own segues for the sake of having an actual segue. Um, yeah, what have I been up to? Um, I managed to get a video edited and out this week. Um, I built some ridiculous uh, Heath Robinson machine to facilitate, I don't know, having a table in bed? I don't know. <laughs> you, you see those kind of... Um, slide on bedside table things or, or the, the kind of things that you like wheel up from the from the base of the bed and, yeah. and have your little sort of prison tray of of shit uh motel breakfast on um and i've always loved that for that idea and um ever since a kid i'd always loved these these kind of automated homes like 50s sci-fi kind of wallace and gromit over-engineered um like automatons um yeah. so i just i i really wanted this idea of something that i could have as a console in bed where i could uh watch movies play games have some food and drinks and stuff and then not have to get up move it out of the way and just go to sleep yeah. um so that basically ended up in this overcomplicated, ridiculous contraption uh which may or may not may or not kill me in bed one night uh, <laughs> because the the smart plugs that i run it off are notorious for just basically um activating themselves especially because it's voice activated <laughs> as well um so i'll nice. go and say something in my sleep um Perfect. yeah so it was a case of that getting the edit out uh, it was a really long edit um because i've done a lot of kind of uh animation and kind of illustration in between to kind of explain a lot of the thinking behind it yeah. um so even though the build was ridiculously complicated actually the edit was quite complicated as well so uh, i managed to get that out this week and uh, this morning, I my car passed its MOT. So, is there, is there an American equivalent of an MOT? No, uh, yeah, have, like, we have smog check it until it works. You have a yeah. It's called a smog check. Smog check, nice. Yeah, we have to do that every year to make sure that our cars are only emitting a little bit of you know, noxious <laughs> gas and environment with your destroyed. economical small engines. Yes, of course. <laughs> my my truck is. Basically, uh, green. Nice. Yeah. Super green. Super green. Uh, yes. No, and it was a very good video. Uh, well done, Al. Um, don't look at. Don't give me that kind of stupid face movement. Uh, I did enjoy it. I also enjoyed it. Um, especially the little uh, little secret bit of uh, of Joe. Uh, well, I, so normally, again, right, going back, now hopefully people realise the shit hidden in all my films, yeah. film videos. Um, I'd filmed this at 50 frames per second, 
Yeah. Normally, I film it at 20 frames per second, um, and it fucked up the thing. So normally, I just put one frame in. Yeah. So people, people obviously, so far, have not seen anything. Um, whereas this one, because of the frame rate, one frame didn't work yeah. when, I, when I had the mixed frame rate. So I had to put three frames of Joe in. And I think it's a bit uh, too obvious. So I yeah. think that's why too many people spotted it. Um, so I'm going to have to work out a, bit, a better way of doing that than being a bit more subtle. <laughs> I gotta go back and watch your whole channel again. <laughs> That's the idea. Yeah, it's not actually anything hidden in any of the others. It's just <laughs> for that. Um, Look what I found yesterday. <laughs> it's, my, it's my Baron Antler book. You can't see the sticker on it, but oh, yeah. this, what, what was the swan water bottle? Was that just like have a stuffed swan as a water bottle? <laughs> I, I was just writing down, or you were writing drunk. down in a bit of a state, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you were just writing down like singular thoughts. <laughs> so I don't know what Swan Water bottle. Oh, is. I know what it was. Wasn't it doing that with the water bottle to show off his bicep? Uh, oh, nice. okay. I, I I also like the idea of just having a a, a swan ta water. a taxidermied swan that's hollow <laughs> and filled with water, like a, like a, like pouches, like yeah, a medieval water pouch. <laughs> But that'd be great because you can have it as like a backpack and just lean against the wall and have it. Oh, and it just, it just comes over like a Britney yeah. mic. And yeah. You just have like the swan neck coming around. Yeah, like a camel pack. Yeah, it wouldn't look like you're just making out with a bird. <laughs> you see, that's the bad thing. A very I, I, moist bird. <laughs> I, I think my favorite page might be uh, Joe forges his own currency. It's the size of a dinner plate, but small size when we film it for Joe to pocket. The only. <laughs> The only acceptable currency, or no, no, no the only currency accepted worldwide. <laughs> like, what were you on then? Oh, brilliant. Um, so happy. Brett, what about you? What have you been up to? Uh, I have been mostly finishing video projects. Um, I finished filming the expanded mesh seats, so I've got a edit those up they actually turned out really great with the um led solar lights stuck underneath right. them we took them out to the container house the other day and waited until the lights turned on which it turns out is way later than i expected i thought it was like a <laughs> dusk thing but it was like full night so al same kind of problem iso was cranked way up to try and capture something decent but they looked great in person and I love that the idea worked. Um, I also finished filming the Flatter video, which, as I mentioned last week, um, I just submitted about an hour ago for, like, final review with the, the sponsor company. Um, had a nice long talk with Alex about Raid and his thoughts on it, but we'll leave that out of it. Anyway, the it's nice to have... Formatting system. <laughs> yeah yeah alex is raid systeming but you know again i'm i'm like excited that maybe things are switching around a little bit and we could get some more like sponsory gigs and it nice. would help things out a lot and they did not bulk not that it was like a raids specific company it's all these you know media companies or marketing companies but considering how i shot it i was like yeah. i'm gonna submit this to them and i have a feeling they're gonna go don't do that. Like, just do an ad read like we told you to do it. And I, I really didn't want to because I don't... I'm going to try as hard as I can to make them at least fun or, or enjoyable. 
Um, and so I really thought I was going to get some kickback from him being like, don't do what you did. <laughs> but I didn't. All they said was like, we need you to add a couple more things, which I was obviously like, I don't want to go back and reshoot it. But, but sh- I mean, surely they, they, they want you to do it in your way. Otherwise, there's yeah. no point them getting you to advertise fuck all. Yeah. If, no, you, if, if, if I, they just get anyone to advertise anything, it's of no value to them. It's, yeah, it's that's true. But awareness. think of how we've discussed the, the swing and the trend uh, where it seems like recently these companies are actually saying, do it in your own words or do it in yeah. your own style or whatever, because I think people are becoming, I think you might've said it last week when we were discussing this, but people are okay with the ads or the sponsors. Yeah. Like I think at first it was just like, Oh, I don't watch TV for this exact reason. You know? And you're like, nowadays it's an accepted part of what we do, but the companies are actually bending a little bit and realizing that if you're advertising on YouTube, you should let the channel do what they well, do. Well, that, that's exactly yeah. what I mean. Otherwise, it might as well just be a cut to an ad. Yeah. There's no, and there's no point you reading it out if it's not read out as Brett. That's yes. Because they've realized authenticity sells. Yeah. yeah. There you go. And and considering, you know, I, I'm not trying to sound uh, self-deprecating in any way, mm-hmm. but being a smaller channel and knowing what they offer somebody like me to do this versus, you know, a bigger channel with a bigger audience. The real thing or the thing that I kept bringing up in the emails back and forth is like, I actually play this game. So like, if you want me to promote it, I would love to do it in my own way. And, you know, hopefully it's for my audience and blah, blah, blah. So it's just, it was a weird week to, to be working on this stuff because I feel like the, Skillshare one where I animated you guys was a bit more fun and they were yeah. comfortable with what I did and it was tutorial driven. And what this is, this is actually just putting a product at the beginning of a video. So it's a bit interesting, but I'm glad that they didn't uh, kick back on that too hard. So I'll get that video out hopefully tomorrow if they sign off on it. Yeah. And then uh, I have a bit of, a, of an adventure planned for this weekend. I don't know if it's going to be tomorrow or Saturday, but by the time this episode comes out, I may have locked in some very fun projects going forward that, as far as I know, are kind of like never-ending. I happened to talk to a fan viewer guy who emailed me who... who basically has all of these beautiful treasures and artifacts and fossils and meteors and things and just goes, I like to create displays for them, but I don't have the time because I'm a very busy guy. Would you have any interest in forging like steel stands for these big fossils that are the size of truck tires and stuff? And <laughs> I was like, that sounds pretty fun. And he goes, right. Tell you what, let's not discuss anything too much until you come out here and see it. Cause I have four, 40 foot shipping containers full of this stuff. Wow. And I want to get it out into the world. Yeah. So nice. I won't talk. I, I'm trying not to get my hopes up too much, but I'm so optimistic because it was such a out of nowhere email of this guy just going, I really like what you do. And I've been following you since Jimmy shop. Hmm. Here's my name and address and what I do. You can search me on Google and I won't say his name here, but I was taken aback. And it's very exciting. I'm looking forward to it. So I feel like things are going in a good direction right now. I feel very energetic. I'm doing my fucking taxes, which I hate. <laughs> I'm doing my taxes. I'm trying to be productive. Good Anywho. Sense. Yes. Functional member of society. But 
Go on. I believe that's it for me. Steve, I want to know how things have been. Oh. <laughs> that was such a weird segue. Uh, oh, is it weirder than what you did for the first five minutes of this episode? Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, I might be, I have had a, well, we have had a very, very busy week in the workshop. Um, there's lots of cool and exciting things going on at the moment. Um, but uh, we uh, we got a pan delivery, so we obviously get the um, the pan bases hand spun um, by some guys uh, a little way down the road, um, and they'll ship them up to us about a hundred a time. Um, and the process that we use, uh, we have to pre-season um, the pans before we drill and handle them, um, and that was almost exactly the same as working back in a commercial kitchen because we have a big kiln. Uh, it's actually a pottery kiln, but it's a um, like front opening kiln. Uh, and we stack in um, like oven shelves, stack in all the pans and heat them up to about 300 ish degrees um, and then bring them out and, and do all that. And uh, yeah, so I have so, so many little burns on my fingers and forearms from mm. that. Uh, but part of the process is because we've got to degrease everything. Um, we like if you touch something afterwards, then it leaves um, fingerprints on it. So we have we've got to be really meticulous with how we do it. I made the suggestion that maybe we should get some cotton gloves because then you're not going to be putting finger oil all over the uh, like freshly degreased pans which is great except the fact that large gloves are not large at all <laughs> um uh but they have the added bonus of when i'm uh if i accidentally like just brush my finger across the pan and i get burned yay you you two are not as excited about that as well. <laughs> yay uh, <laughs> uh and also uh obviously we've just been doing a shitload of stock stuff um for the workshop uh so i've taken over doing a lot of the copper work um which meant that i got to muck around and make some really pretty colors in some copper discs um over the last few days um and then as part of that we had to oh sorry because i'm taking it over i'm uh, I'm basically being the, the only other person other than Alex that is doing a lot of these processes. So Alex is obviously we've, we started it, um, like went through a, uh, prototyping stage, um, started making the things and never really spent any time refining the process. Um, so we've spent quite a lot of time this week, um, either making completely new tooling or modifying the tooling that we've got to just speed up the process, make things a bit easier, make things a bit nicer. Um, like the the copper bowls, the process that we do now um, is quite different to the process that's in the video that was only made, what, a month ago. Um, so, yeah, it's quite it's quite good. It's been quite good fun doing that. Uh, we also had two people come in for interviews for jobs, um, which is exciting. Um, so that means that we can actually boost uh, production levels. Um, one of the people is a, uh, 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 I was going to say fully qualified. One of the people has, has done three years of blacksmithing at Hereford. Um, and the other one was a 16 year old. 
um, who the 16 year old will be coming in as more of a teaching assistant, um, or basically as my assistant as opposed to Joe's assistant. Um, we uh, we've got two other people that will be coming in applying for Joe's assistant job um, that also have more experience. But it was really interesting seeing the um, the resulting work from because obviously everyone that comes in has to do a test piece, and we just got them to do a center punch. And it was really interesting seeing the result of um, of the guy that had had three years training making a center punch to the guy that had come on an axe course with us once and then built a forge at home. Um, and like a year ago, well, six months ago. Um, and yeah, it's just seeing the, the, the difference between what they actually produced, um, which actually would be a really good topic to go into for another episode. Um, yes, yeah, so that was really exciting. Uh, so Charlie, the young lad is actually starting work with us as of Tuesday. So when this comes out, it'll be yesterday or possibly the day before yesterday, depending on when we get this out. Um, so yeah, uh, that's really exciting. Um, we've got lots of stuff coming up this weekend. So we're doing two live streams, uh, this weekend. Um, basically because we're not doing the festivals, we're not teaching at the moment. Um, and we're trying to get all the production and everything going. And we've got uh, about three weeks where we are going to be ridiculously busy in the workshop. Um, so this uh, this one that we're going to be doing tomorrow, Saturday, um, is going to be like the last hurrah uh, for the live streams for a while. So we're going to be doing a, a kitchen axe. So nice. I yeah. saw the tease from Al. I was very excited. Yeah, that's, that's going to be good for fun. the... Uh... Uh, the goat more than oh me, so nice <laughs> um so yeah we're going to be doing like a another kind of forge and feast uh style thing um with james wetlaw from cabrito goat um and yeah the basically the guys are going to try and forge heat treat handle and sharpen an axe in around an hour uh which is going to be it's going to be fun it's going to be interesting seeing how they got on with that um mm. But yeah, so doing that and uh, yeah, just lots. We're going to be doing some more filming next week as well. Um, so hopefully we should have another video coming out very soon. Nice. Uh, and the last, oh no, two other things. So the first one, I don't know, I've had a busy week. Uh, first one is I took uh, this afternoon off and actually got some work done on the truck, um, which was so good to do. Um, and the second one, I put the Sloyds up to my patrons. Um, spent ages talking about the fact that uh, I'm not quite sure how they feel about them. Um, like, if they were perfect, then they'd be going up for X amount. But because they're not, they're going up for this. And because they're patrons, actually, the price is this. So I like, dropped it down twice before I'd even um, told them what the price was sort of thing. And... Um, and kind of put a caveat on it saying, oh, it's fine because any that don't get sold, they're just going to become workshop knives. So it's fine. Uh, put the post up and then six minutes later, they were all sold out. So <laughs> that was nice. Uh, hey. it, also, it also means that I've got to make a load more um, slides now. So yeah. Yay. Um, and that segues lovely, Lee, lovely, <laughs> Lee, uh, into Alex. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, a little bit about your history and what we're going to talk about today. You bet. Uh, I'll do that in reverse order. Uh, 
So my name is Alex Gibbs. Uh, I am the owner of an IT company based out of New York. And what I wanted to talk about today was a topic that was started uh, a few episodes ago with regarding kind of the imposter complex that people feel and how to assess your product and your own value. Um, so I think just to give you a bit of context of my opinion, so I know I'm not just coming out of left field, I'll give you a little bit of my own history about how I got to where I'm at. And I'll just hit the basic points and then you just, you know, we'll just move it on from there. Yeah. All right. Um, normally, you know, people would start kind of about the time they go to university or when they get out of university. But I have to back it up a bit further than that, because the minute I tell you what happened when I went to university, you're going to think I'm insane uh, <laughs> unless I tell you about 10 years prior. So I got to just give you some brief context before you understand the craziness that it unfolded. Hmm. When I was about five, I had a grandfather who was really, really into American social security system. And he was really into politics and, and the ideas of how you can use money and value. And he started getting into this new idea called computers. <laughs> it was in the mid eighties and he had a Commodore 64 in his, uh, in his library that I was allowed to go in and learn. And this is before I'm even in, I think you guys call it primary school when you're about yeah. six or seven years old. This is before that. And so I had already gone in at that point and become completely fluent in the basic language of a Commodore. I could play my own video games. I started hack the games when I was that age, learned how to cheat at them. It was wild. <laughs> and when I started to go to primary school, my family moved into the middle of nowhere. Like the, the population of this town was 200 people. And so the education was uh, totally different. And when I walked into the classroom, I can remember being six years old and they had a Commodore 64 in the back of the classroom that was in pieces. <laughs> and I went up to the teacher and I was like, why is your computer in pieces? And she goes, well, we don't know how to put it together. I'm like, I can put that together for you. And she's like, what? <laughs> and I go over there and I just plug everything in and turn it on. And she looked at me like I just worked some wizardry magic. And I'm like, no, this thing goes here and this goes there. And like, look, you can play video games on it now. And I was so excited to show the class what I was doing. Yeah. Six. I was six. <laughs> right. So it evolved from there into eventually my mom got this this computer called Packard Bell that existed before like the days of Dell and those guys. And it was right around the days of like Windows 3.1. You're still rocking DOS and you could, you know, yeah. want to play Doom and, you know, Windows 95 came out and everybody lost their minds. <laughs> right. And I remember that I really wanted to play this game called X-Wing, but my mom's Packard Bell wasn't good enough to do it. So I tore it apart and learned how to upgrade the thing myself. And I remember putting in like new processors and new RAM what I didn't know was my mom at the time, I, she was a single mother and she's working on her master's documentation, which was on the hard drive of the computer. And she came home to find her son had torn apart her computer. <laughs> <laughs> and all of her master's work is located on this thing and she freaked out. But, you know, I learned a lot about this and I really got into it. And so by the time I was about 14 years old, there was a, a computer store in my local town that was building like little custom systems. And I wanted to go in, I wanted to help out. I was too young to have a pay gig because the working age at that time was 15 and a half. But I wanted to see if I could just volunteer, even yeah. at 14. And I remember clearly the owner just putting a shell case on the desk and he goes, all right, we wanna see you build a computer from scratch. 
And I was so nervous. I didn't know what anything <laughs> what I was doing. And I took a screwdriver and I started unscrewing the back of the case. And he looks over at the head technician and the technician stops me and goes, you're unscrewing the power supply. You need to <laughs> not do that. <laughs> and put the case back together and he showed me where the right screws were. And I remember being humiliated and embarrassed and very upset. Again, going back to that imposter complex we're gonna talk about. But I could, I just remember just being, oh, that was so bad. I didn't get, you know, they didn't ask me to come back. I couldn't volunteer there. But I remember from there forward, I'm going to learn everything there is about these custom systems. Forget these Packer Bells and these ready-made computers. I want to make them from scratch. And so I spent the next year doing what used to be cash on delivery orders, COD orders of computer yeah. parts to my mom's house. And I was too young to pay with a credit card. So I'd have these delivery guys show up and I'd hand them a hundred dollars for like a monitor. And suddenly my mom's like, what are all these computer parts doing showing up? <laughs> and I'm in the basement, you know, of my mom's house, just building and assembling my own computer and, you know, putting video games on it and stuff. It was wild. And to the point where I'm now approaching 15 and a half, I'm approaching legal working age. And uh, there was a, a custom repair store that was close to my junior high school. I was probably 15 years old, maybe. And I was going down there every single day after school, just hanging out for hours. And the, the head technician would, you know, come out and he'd be like, Hey, do you looking to buy a computer? I'm like, no, man, I'm just looking to learn. And I would hang out at that store every day yeah. for probably about three or four months until the day that guy finally was gonna retire and move on to a better job. And on his resignation letter was a note to the general manager that he needs to hire this kid. <laughs> and the general manager came out on that day and pulled me into his office and he goes, you're the youngest employee we potentially ever had. Show me what you got. And I, I did. Within six months, I was the manager of the IT department. I was fixing every single computer that was running in and out of that place. I started designing my own custom systems. And nice. then I was, six months later, I was offered a job as a network administrator for a real estate company. So now I'm 16 and a half. And I'm, now I'm dealing with realtors and learning how to do networking, like real networking. Yeah. And it was a lot of fun, but it was a lot of sweat. Just like I had to run a bunch of wiring in this building and I had to learn what wiring was. And it was like, <laughs> I'm 16. What am I doing? And then... I personally had a fallout where I ended up having to, I left my mom's house at a young age yeah. where now I'm on my own. And now I'm starting to look at a job, not as something fun that a kid does, but I need to make rent. Yeah. Right. So now suddenly the idea of work or a job takes on a whole new meaning. I go from that place working as a network administrator for the real estate company. Now that I'm 17 years old, I've been junior in high school and I become a network administrator for a GPS satellite mapping company, <laughs> right? And we're designing maps from all over the, well, primarily the United States. Our sweet spot was is that we were digitizing 911 networks throughout the rest of the United States, specifically in rural areas where nobody had ever mapped anything. So we'd yeah. stick these huge magnets on top of cars and I would send my drivers out in the middle of nowhere, Montana or Missouri and they would just drive around and I would sit there and see all the calculations come in and feed it out to my designers and they would actually then build the entire maps and I would run the server network infrastructure. We would, we were so good at it that we were, I was meeting with county, municipal governments, state senators, it was just wild. And again, I'm 17 and I've got mm -hmm. piercings all over my face. So I'd walk into these boardroom meetings and 
they were like, is this the kid running your network? Like, <laughs> was like, yeah, yeah. But we get these bizarre gigs from time to time. And one of my proudest ones was we helped design or digitize the Formula One Raceway in Germany, the Nuremberg Ring Raceway. Yeah. And that was wild. My boss wanted <laughs> to send me to Germany. And I told him no, because I had a date. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was a 17-year-old kid. I didn't know any better. Priorities. Yeah. Right? And then, like, this is, again, going back to that imposter complex. I, I was a young... Yeah, as a kid, I just I said the wrong thing to the wrong person and specifically called the CFO a bad word. And uh, the CEO <laughs> sat me down and he's like, look, man, you're making me pick between my CFO and you. Who do you think I'm going to pick? Yeah. And so, of course, he fired me. You know, he he drove me home and because I didn't even have a driver's license. He drove me <laughs> home, gave me two months severance. And uh, that was that. After that, I graduated high school and then decided to go to university and decided I didn't want to have the big responsibility gigs anymore. So I decided to take a gig working for a small mom and pop shop building yeah. custom computers. And it was wonderful working for these two guys. I was their very first employee. It was just these two brother-in-laws and they, they were fantastic to work for. Uh, again, I was just, I wanted to do this like part-time with them and then go to school but I didn't really take it seriously. <laughs> like not, not the job. I didn't take school seriously. I took the job yeah. very seriously. Within about six months or so, I was basically in charge of design about quality. And we'll get back to quality of components in a bit. But I was like, no, these are garbage motherboards. We're not selling these anymore. I want to have quality stuff in here and started designing really good computers. After about a year and a half of that, uh, I just, I failed out of school. And I was spending way too much time focused on other things, chasing girls, drinking, and not really thinking about school at all. And I failed out completely. After that, I decided to say, screw it. I threw a dartboard at a wall of the map of the United States with two friends of mine and left Missouri and moved to San Diego on a whim. Nice. Literally with nothing. Like we, we showed up with like a 24-foot rider truck that we drove all the way there and all the way back. <laughs> the problem was is that we showed up on September 3rd, about a week before September 11th happened here in the States. And so all of my interviews that I had immediately went on indefinite hold. Yeah. And there was no computer jobs to be had, not in a military base like San Diego. Yeah. So suddenly I found myself for the first time standing in line for a fast food place. And I remember getting a job at Taco Bell. Mm. <laughs> and, nice. You know, and, and the guys were like, you know, you're going to be working dishes for six months. I'm like, yeah, whatever, man. But the bottom line from there was a short trip. Within three months, our savings was gone, and I had no choice but to move home. So as crazy as it was, I decided to go back and work for the computer store. But this time, I have a completely different mindset about it. I wanted to build computers, but like really focus on that job. And I couldn't go to school, couldn't go back to university, A, because I had failed out, but B, the finances, the way the politics work is, is that you're judged based on your your parents' income. You're not judged based on your own until you turn 25. Yeah. So I promised myself, I'm going to do this until I turn 25, and then I make a serious run at school. So I did. And I helped turn that, that little mom and pop store from what was 3,000 customers to 60,000 clients region-wide. 
I was one of the youngest kids ever invited to a, an Intel engineers conference help. And I was trained on designing how to build laptops from scratch. It was nice. wild. Mm. When I was 23, uh, the state of Missouri had a network administrator competition that they host every year. And they called me up and asked me to judge the wiring piece, <laughs> which is like wild. It's like, I got to go down there and judge these kids. I'm 23. But they're like, you have real world experience. I'm like, well, true. Fine. So I go down there and they show me what they want to line them up. I'm like, okay, well, look, if they can build this wire to that wire to this wire to that wire, and I could plug it in on both sides, then they pass. Hmm. Sadly, I failed every kid that was in my course. Nobody, <laughs> it. Nobody had the right training. It was just like, what are yeah. you going to do? Um, but, at, you know, it was neither here nor there. So that was crazy. So when, when I turned 25, I at that point, I went to my boss and I was like, look, I now am eligible. I want to go to college. So I want to either be partner, you know, in your company or I'm going to go. And, yeah. it, you know, I love those guys, but they're like, you know, this has always been our company. We loved having you all these years, but we're going to help you go to school. And I said, okay. So I said, forget computers. And I gave it all up <laughs> and I moved to Kansas and decided to get two English degrees. One English degree, uh, was an emphasis in post-Romantic Russian literature. And the second was in linguistics in the former Yugoslavia. So Croatian, Serbian, Bosnian, Macedonian. Yeah. Wild stuff. And so I, I did not want to do anything computers. Like I, I met I went to Kansas and I was like hiding myself. I'm like, nobody should know I know anything about computers. Meanwhile, I'm like building my own systems in my, you know, dorm room. And it's it is it was what it was. So I finally graduated, and I'm proud to say with nearly a 4.0. And at that point, I didn't know what to do. I was in Kansas and didn't really – I thought I was going to teach English. My sisters finally called me up, and they both lived in New York at the time, and they decided to fly me out here for Thanksgiving, which is, you know, uh, late November. Yeah. And when I arrived in New York, I fell in love with it immediately. I went back to Kansas, and I sold everything I owned and came back to New York with a backpack and a gym bag. And I thought, honestly, I was going to teach English. And it turns out they don't pay. And I wasn't going <laughs> to So I put my, my old computer resume back out there, which at this point, um, yeah, so I'm just going right to the end now. At this point, you, know, you now know all of that history and where it all comes from, right? Yeah. So now the, now's where the rubber hits the road. I'm broke and starving in New York. And what happens is I get a job offer and a phone call. And it's from a guy um, who is now the founder of the company that I own. And he goes, look, you're way overqualified for this position. Uh, and I go, I know, but I need a job. And he goes, great, because I need an employee. <laughs> and working for him for a year, he pulls me into his office and says, I want to retire. Do you want my company? And I said, yes. Nice. That was 10 years ago. <laughs> and so now for the last 10 years, I've been running this company uh and it has been a wild twist and turns ever since but all of that context that i just gave you is all to say like everything that has been crazy and the just nuts throughout the entire process led to that moment where it said okay am i am i faking it at this point or am i going to be able to survive what's about to happen next because i've just been handed a company in one of the most competitive cities in the world yeah Right. 
And that's where like I'm coming from on this and where I wanted to then start the conversation with you guys about imposter complex and assessing value. Couple of questions, Al. Yeah. Awesome story. Thank you for getting <laughs> us up to speed. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. context is king. Um, first off, how do you throw a dartboard at the wall? <laughs> <laughs> um, and secondly, um, you said you uh, helped digitize the Nurburgring. Was that for like video games, for like a Formula One so, racing game or something? Originally, it, it, so it was the basis of it. So I actually have it in my my uh, bedroom right over here. I can go the pull it up. What's that? <laughs> the, whole, the, the whole ring. <laughs> the whole ring. But including not just the Formula One track, but the actual uh, 300 kilometer track that goes through all the cities. Ooh, nice. Yeah, like the whole thing. And what it's for originally was the basis of comparison for them to draw uh, then 3D, what it became 3D modeling in AutoCAD. So you need to have this like 2D hmm. layout from GPS so you can get accurate representation on it if you wanted to do larger stuff. But you could actually then buy the drawings to then build video games and do all kinds of other crazy stuff. But nice. this this was the days of early, early GPS. So like yeah. I was rocking ISDN lines, man, like motors <laughs> between Missouri and Germany. Nice. <laughs> so nothing too crazy, but it was neat. So based on what we were talking about last week, I hope I'm not jumping in anybody's way, but Alex, I want to go down the road of like, what did it mean to, you didn't start your own company, but you took over for somebody and all of the stuff that you and I talked about with the uh, imposter complex and what it meant to um, kind of put yourself out there as a professional being relatively young and coming up from effectively nothing. Sure. Um, the biggest thing that I learned from my previous failures <laughs> was humility. I can remember me being fired when I was 18 because I called somebody a name. Well, from that, I, I realized that when I took over from this guy who wanted to retire, it, it's super important that he not only stay relevant to this thing that he had built, but I needed to hear from him on ideas of mine, whether or not they were crazy or they were boring or what have you. Having that sense of humility to let, to, for me to keep him around all the way through all of my thought processes for years, even if it was just us grabbing a beer and catching up, meant the world to him and it meant the world to me. Some of my best designs just came from us spitballing, right? And it's what it means is, is like when you're going to do that or step into somebody else's shoes, it is a it is an important thing to remember whose shoes you're stepping into because yours are simply different, right? You're not you're not literally using somebody else's shoes or figuratively using somebody else's shoes, right? Because you're about to start use their shoes and you're going to start your own new path. But the only reason you can start a new path is because of those shoes that took you to that spot in the first place. Mm -hmm. So you have to have the context of where they came from and understand where they would want to go to make sure that you can then diverge in your own way. Uh, cool. Al, you're still muted, mate. All right, Al, you're all muted. <laughs> you ruined it. I had a good joke then, but fuck yeah. <laughs> Well, Sorry about Alex or Steve, 
if you recall what you were talking about a couple of weeks ago with products or creating products, what the value was selling these kinds of things, um, Alex had some some strong thoughts and didn't quite think you you hit the nail on the head, as it were. So I would like to hear <laughs> you two discuss. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Alex, go. Like, tell Steve everything that you were telling me. I want to get into this a lot deeper. Uh, okay. So let's do some, some really fast math stuff. Um, it is shocking to me how many people don't really know how to assess their value off the top of their head. And I mean this in, in the most generic sense. One of the best pieces of advice I was ever given was from my dad. And he goes, look, when you start thinking about your value, you don't understand that you work 2000 hours a year. You can gauge that, you know, however you want. You can, you know, tone it down. You can tone it up for your work-life balance. But 2,000 hours a year is, is that's your sweet spot. So think of it this way. Like, Al, could you live off 5K a year? Yep. Yep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean. Um, you're asking the wrong person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's just an arbitrary yeah, number. Right? I know. Yeah. Yeah. But like you'd also be comfortable at 200K. So it's well, like. Well, I mean, they, they, have, they have like, what's the, what's the, um, they don't call it minimum wage anymore. The living wage. Yeah. Sure. Whatever that. And I'm not be. counting like, that. I'm talking like about building fourteen k a year or something is apparently how much it costs to just not die. Right. <laughs> right. So the way I, I, I you figure this then is is like okay, what what are basically going to be your your base housing expenses, right? And it's again, this came from my father. So you have your rule of three. A third of your income is basically guaranteed for your house, your immediate expenses, your immediate food, whatever. A third of that is for you personally, and a third of that goes back to the state. So if if you know that you need arbitrarily 40K a year to survive, right? 40K a year at 2,000 hours is 20 bucks an hour. That's what that's valued at. 20 bucks an hour. That's pretty easy. A third of that, you know exactly where that money is now going, right? So now you can basically gauge the kind of rent you want to have, the kind of money you want to spend, and the kind of, of things you want to have. From that, what, you say, what you'll say is, it's like, all right, well, if I'm valued at $20 an hour, then what kind of product am I making, right? And I don't mean a product that you're guessing at. I mean a product, and I don't mean a prototype. I mean something you've yeah. done at least three times. Right. You did it once to, to just screw around with it. You did it twice to try to perfect the process. And by the third time, you got it nailed down. So by the third time, you got something you can replicate and you can arbitrarily say, I know exactly how long that's going to take me, whether it's 30 minutes, whether it's five hours. So, Steve, like your solenoids, right? Like the things that you're making. Lloyds, right? not solenoids. <laughs> That's solenoids. Oh, no, I, 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 anyway, a, I, no, I want to make a solenoid knife. <laughs> 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 but like in your mind, you know exactly how long those take. Yeah. Right. So like, that's just, I don't know, but like, let's say it, it takes you two hours to make it. And then let's say you're valued at $20 an hour. Well, that means that thing took you 40 hour, $40 to make. Well, yeah. then 40 goes in your pocket. 40 is then to expenses your company. A third is back to the state. That means that thing is valued at $120. Easily. 
<laughs> okay, now when he said this to me, or when we were talking about this the other day, that was the part that I latched onto because I think there are a lot of people in our space that don't understand uh, what their product value is, right? If if they've just started, um, how often is that you can make like a cutting board and say, is it worth $20? Is it worth $200? Does it mm-hmm. matter how much time you put into it? What's the design of it? Is it just a rectangle? Doing math like this at least gives you a basis. That's the biggest thing. I I have never been able to think about things from just what is a baseline measurement because you can go online and look. We all we all know that through Instagram, there's plenty of guys selling tools in the blacksmithing community, and there's kind of a standard for a two pound hammer. Like you can you can gauge that it'll be anywhere between like 150 or 200 bucks, depending on handmade and how finished it is. But how do you know that going in? Well. Simple maths done that way gives you a, gives you a great sense of total worth, and it just solves a lot of problems. How many hours did you spend on it? Is it the first one you've ever made? Is it the only one you've ever made? Well, then you have no basis of comparison. That's why everybody gets really confused and never knows what to charge for their work, especially a one-off piece. Now, if it's something that you're producing, like these Sloyd blades, the it becomes so easy in my head to go, how much does that cost? Or how much do you sell that for? What are you comfortable doing? Get out of your own way and get the pride out of the way. Just do just do some quick maths. That's it. See, I would say complete opposite to that. I'd say a custom piece, <laughs> that is easy to uh, to figure out because that, yeah, you do the, the, uh, the hourly rate, right? What's that? That you know the shop rate the day rate whatever that's that's pretty well established everyone knows that you know if if you've got a project that's going to take you uh three hours then you base that as a half a day um you know you you don't divide up less than half a day and if your shop rate is 300 quid a day then you know that that one product is 150 quid um and there's lots of of things around that and whether you do um days or hours or, or whatever um so a custom piece is going to take you however long it takes you and and that's what you base the the quote off that's what you base the uh the final invoice off um the problem that i had was the fact that these weren't uh these weren't a custom piece these were the i'd only made a handful of sloids before um but these were product but the quality was not up to the standard at which I would feel comfortable charging my hourly rate. Right. So I, th- I think I think there's a few different things at play here. I really I really like your take on it, Al, in terms of working from the top down and then back yeah. up. I've never I've never heard that approach before. <laughs> so like splitting it into thirds getting down to the base, finding out what it is the actual product is, and then working back up and applying that same logic. It's yeah. it, like Brett says, it's a re- it, it just sounds like a really clean, simple ideology. Um, if, if you were to kind of dismiss that and just completely objectively calculate how much it costs you to make things, there's a really, it's not simple, but there's a really clear and objective way of doing that, calculating cost of materials, 
how much salary you want, um, you know, diminishing uh, of all your kind of um, business acquisitions and, and everything and the, the rent of your property. And, you know, you can crunch all the numbers and work out literally how much it would cost you to make a slide knife, Steve, yeah. to, you know, to, to the cent. Um, and even down to like how much uh, abrasives you use to grind it and, and yeah. and it if if you were McDonald's, that's what you'd be doing. Yeah, yeah. Literally. Mm-hmm. If if you were a corporation, you would be crunching those numbers to get the finite detail of how exactly how much that slide that would cost. And then you'd you'd add up some markup, you'd 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 add on your advertising costs and your marketing budget to that, and you'd come to an, a finite objective number. And that very well I'll might be in the region of $120. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um but there's there's a subjective side to it as well, Steve. So like you're saying, well, I made this knife and I'm not happy with it. Someone else could have done exactly the same process, come to the same conclusion, and it would have been a better knife and would be mm. worth more in the eyes of yeah. someone who appreciates the art form. Um, and it, it's the same with tradesmen. It's like you pay for that build, you pay for that build. It's the same. They're doing the same fucking thing. They're using the same tools. One of them's going to do a shit job. One of them's going to do a good job. Which one are you going to pay for? Do you want to pay the cheap builder? And shit's going to go wrong. They're doing the same thing. It technically should be the same hourly rate and the same cost, um, but it's going to come up to it. But I think the, the the flip side of this conversation is not everything you do has the same value. So, yeah. Steve, you run classes. You run a class for an hour. That's going to be like 500 quid for you. Yeah. I don't know, give or take. So that's not 20 quid an hour. That's 500 quid an hour. So all of a sudden that theory kind of, doesn't hold as much weight because it's more about your dispersion of knowledge and your passing on your understanding and if it al you've given us your 20 year fucking life story in terms mm-hmm. of um all the things that have co- to, that have built you up to where you are now and all those stepping stones you're not going to put them on the fucking bill you know, that's not going to be on an invoice oh like, here's, here's that here's that time i uh <laughs> I, I got yeah, from yeah, that yeah. job that cost me 15 grand you know it, it that's life experience and that is immeasurable and it's Mm -hmm. not quantifiable. And it's like, it's not, not everything that counts can be counted. So Mm -hmm. I think that, that I I love the pragmatism of one way of looking at it. I'm also romantic and I also understand that there's, there's the artist in us all and the maker in us all that thinks actually I can, I can let this, this go for 20 quid. Yeah. It's basically mm-hmm. covering the cost of materials because I know the value in that is going to say, now I've got a following, now I've got a dedicated fan, now I've got someone who likes my products is going to recommend them to a friend so I can make another 500 off the back of that. Yes, yeah. you're absolutely right. You're yeah. absolutely right. So the two points, to Steve's point, <laughs> I will get to iterations, like the iterations yeah, yeah, yeah. Like when you want to actually develop and like move out new product. To the point of different types of services, Sure, I have many different kinds of services and consulting without question is my most valued, right? But to what be, we're to be a consultant. About, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> to get paid just to tell people what you think. <laughs> but, but it's also not a full percentage of what I do, No, right? It's a very small percentage. So I don't count that into my basic calculations. What we're talking about is you want to work 2,000 hours in a year. What do you want to do for those 2,000 hours, right? And then for that 2,000 hours, what is it that you want to make to make yourself, your, your life personally successful? How do you feel, mm-hmm. right? Are you okay making the 60K or do you need 80 to actually pull that off? If you do, what does it take for then 
for that kind of calculation to happen? Do you need to go to your boss and ask for a raise? Do you need to cut back on particular sets of expenses? You can now do that math off the top of your head because it's, it's so in your face about it, hmm. right? And you just know, you know exactly what it takes for your, yourself to survive and you know exactly what your goals should be moving forward. But it doesn't have any, any impact then on, on the one-offs or the artisan piece of this, where if you wanna do a friend a favor, by all means do so, but that's your choice, right? We're not talking about exceptions to the rule. We're just talking about like, okay, what's my basis of comparison? So I at least have a set of guidelines. And if I want to veer from those guidelines, I can absolutely do so, Yeah. right? It's in your choice. And that's, that's an important, at least then you have a, a smooth path that you can always come back to where the ship will always self-write, right? Because you can't do everybody favors. I used <laughs> to, right? I fixed all of my friends' computers. <laughs> right and then suddenly i have no time with my girlfriend right and that's the trade-off but it's yeah, like, everyone's okay. credit card numbers <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so it's 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 this machination where you just want to basically say okay i am going to self-value myself but i want to make sure that i know that i'm worth at least you know arbitrarily 35 dollars an hour and anything less than that no like i, I i'll do you a favor but that's what it's going to be it's going to be an exception it will be a favor you're not going to willing to pay my rate, then I'm not willing to do it. Hmm. Right. And it's your own personal service that then comes down to say, all right, well, what's my knife versus his knife? Well, it doesn't really matter. The cost of materials are probably about equal. Yeah. We're just building a knife. So now we're just talking about service and skill set. Is then what am I willing to pay for? Am I willing to pay then for your sets of skills versus his set of skills? And this comes down to then, Steve, your question on iterations, because you are absolutely right in pointing out that every single iteration you do, every iteration behind you will always be worse than the one you currently are working on. And everyone you have going forward will be better than what you have now. So where do you draw the line, right? You can go all crazy and look at a company like Apple. Apple you know, releases new laptops every year or every other year. And every single iteration they have is always better. Like my sister's laptop sitting behind me and this thing's a dinosaur. Right. And it's they knew when they had to release it that they were already building better products, but that thing was good enough to go to market. So the yeah. question is, where then is the line between when you want to go to market and when you shouldn't have? And the simple answer is when you when you know that you're not ashamed of it. Right. If you can replicate it and replicate it consistently, you know, it's not going to be recalled in your mind. Right. It doesn't bring you sadness, but like this is something that you're actually proud of. But, you know, you've got new versions coming. It's OK. Those can go to market. And if like you really you've sold like 20 of them and you have version 1.2 come out and you want to give those 20 people the new version because they were nice enough to buy your first version. <laughs> what you're establishing then is your reputation of always wanting to make better versions of what you've already got. Yeah. And then that's what are going to drive people to continue to come back to buy the knives then from you. Because you will always have the better iterations, the better versions, because you're always forward thinking and always putting in those products on the market to establish your progression of skill over time. So yeah. I have a question for you then. Yep. So you're, uh, you've are you gone out and you, you've made a product. And, mm -hmm. um, and you've got this product in front of you. And you look at it and go, okay, this serves the function that it's intended for there are definitely faults with it i could definitely do this better um i so i'm not ashamed of it in, ter in terms of you know it it does the thing that it needs to do 
Um, but at the same time, you're not happy with it. And it's not just a case of, uh, you know, you're not happy with it because, you know, in six months time, there's going to be a, a, a better whatever. Um, it's just it's not you're not 100 percent there. So but you're like, OK, well, this is this is good enough to sell at least. Um, you sit down, you do your calculations and you go, right, this thing is going to cost $120. And then you look at it and you go, someone asked me to pay $120 for that. I would not be happy. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to pay that. What do you do with that then? Would, you know, and you say, but you know, if someone, if someone asked me to pay $70, $75, yeah, yeah, I'd be happy. What do you do with that product then? Do you say, okay, well, I mean, because obviously like for, for my, um, for the Sloyds, like, I had that conversation with my patrons and that's why I only released it to them because I knew I could have the conversation with them. I knew I could explain, this is why I'm selling them like this. This is what I'm not happy with, yada, yada, yada. Um, so it's kind of a, it's, I'm quite fortunate in that sense because I'm not releasing it to the, the general public. I'm releasing it to a, uh, uh, what's the um, fucking film thing where they have a an audience test audience test screen yeah test yeah so test. I, yeah yeah so yeah so I'm 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 able to do that to to um, like friends and um, and so I can do that. You but give it, your friends the shitty ones. <laughs> yeah, but then they get a nice they, they get a nice one later on. Um, <laughs> the but, research and development. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly um but so say for uh for random maker x is out there and they've made this thing they're not 100 percent happy with it and they know that actually um you know i can do better i can do this and actually i wouldn't feel so bad if i was selling it for 75 percent of the price or 60 percent of the price that again I, I, I really think this is this is the the impression of capitalism on individuals so you're, you've got the mentality of a personal, uh, you know, one person and, and your yeah. your pride and your passion and your love for your craft and your respect for your customers versus uh, a company that would sell knives who couldn't give a fuck. They yeah. would they would churn that out if there was an imperfection. It's the the um, the Fight Club scenario. You know how much is it going to cost for a recall versus how much does it cost to pay off the <laughs> the families yeah. of the dead people who crashed die in the car crash. It's like you don't think that way, but you've been conditioned to think about money that way. And the two things are, are, are difficult to be compatible because you do give a fuck. So yeah. all these calculations and all these values and stuff is oh I could buy a knife from a fucking Walmart for five bucks. So yeah, you could. It would be shitty. It wouldn't be handmade, and no one would give a fuck about it at any yeah. point of that process. Whereas you're giving a fuck about it. But I think it's back to what Alex was saying as well about the imposter syndrome. The only reason you're hesitant or you know reluctant is because oh I can do better. I can. I'm learning. I'm constant. So you're 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 projecting your personal like growth onto an inanimate object. Yeah, like, oh, in, in a year's time, this knife is going to be better. Why not wait until it's perfect yeah, but, and then but, I can sell it? I'm not. I'm not saying that. I'm saying I do not value that product as the price that I should be charging. In terms of just going, like we say, going back to the the pure basics of going right. This is my hourly rate. This is what I need to make. Yeah. Um. Like this is what my minimum wage should be. Yeah. Looking. 
that's not and I don't know how I could do better it's just going actually this is this isn't ready for market um so at, at what point does someone stop doing that so if we've got um random makers well, ask, ask Jacko it cost him like 100 grand <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, I'm not talking someone having a, a huge business. I'm talking like a, the the single person that's just making little things to to sell at a market or whatever. When sure. they, uh, do you cross that bridge where you can go? Actually, you know what? Fuck it. I can I can charge my full price for this. Because mm-hmm. obviously, okay, so obviously, as you get better, you're going to go up in price and all that. But just as a as a general. So there, there are two exceptions. The first exception is if you are actually building something that can be dangerous, right? So something that must be recalled out of your customer's hands, right? You build a yeah. car with no brakes. That's right. That's got to go back, right? But if it's not, and it's just like it's, it functionally is safe and it's not going to hurt anybody, then you're okay. Plus it's shit. The other, <laughs> the other exception could be that it is you have fundamentally made an improvement to what it is that you built before. Like fundamentally in your mind, something is now new about your product that was not that way yesterday. <clears throat> right there. But that, that's getting into Apple territory. That's getting into I'll get there in a sec. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why you price it out in thirds is because remember the last third is yours. You can shave off that as much as you want. So long as one third goes back to the state, one third covers your costs and your pay. The other third was going to roll back into your company to rebuild your own product. So if you value your own hours at 20 bucks an hour and you're going to charge 60 for it, you can shave $20 off of that pretty easily just Mm. off your own mind. Yeah. Right. And just know that like, okay, well my, my company or my, my 1099, me personally is not going to put anything into the savings account or the coffers in this particular experience. That's okay because I'm investing that money into R and D. I'm investing yeah. that money into my beta team and communicating then my product out to new people and get feedback, which has value to then improve your product to where then you can charge full price. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Again, I also think that, yeah, I also as think long just, as it's just, safe. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, ca- the counter analogy was, was a metaphor, not an analogy. I apologize. <laughs> I didn't mean if it's going to kill you, you should recall it, Steve. Um, but I, 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 I also think that, it doesn't necessarily mean that as you improve your price go up. Could be the exact opposite. Could be that as you improve, the price goes down because yeah, yeah. your your manufacturing processes improve, or you know, Moore's law, or something that, that affects how your products get better over time. You can produce more of them. You get quicker. You get you know. So it, cost is not necessarily an indication of quality, which I think is important. It could be the opposite. It could be an indication of exclusivity. So Jimmy's ice picks first batch handmade could have been more expensive than the thousands he got Brett to make. (laughs) 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 Um, You know, um, I'm not sure of the price difference of those, but you know, as as the production goes up, it could be that cost comes down. So I wouldn't. Yeah. But I mean, the minute we're talking about building thousands of something, we're moving out of the artisan world into something different. Right. So what we're talking about, there's a fine line because, because Steve, you, you, you know, hundreds of pans, Mm-hmm. You know, you're getting into that yeah. territory. You're getting, you know, how many nails have you made? You get into that 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 point of production. So these 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 things do matter, and there there is a knock on effect. It's not just what you're not 
making a painting. No offense. Yeah. No. no, no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, that's that's the thing is, I I find this a really, um, a really grey subject because obviously my my nine to five is as a production smith, so that is very much like the the business, um, like Alex Paul Ironwork, Forge Kitchen, whatever you want to call it. That that does work on this basis of mm. right. How long does each product take to make? What are the uh, material costs? What are the uh, added costs? Um, you know, and we and we divide it up by we actually do it all by how many get made in a day and what the daily rate of the shop is. Um, and so, yeah, in in that respect, the, it is very clear cut because that's part of the business. But at the same time, there's me doing stuff in in my workshop or between jobs or, or whatever like and I, I know we're using the slides as an example um but for me like i wouldn't want to um i wouldn't want to put out a a bunch of slides uh this week um and charge 120 dollars knowing that they have slight defects or even if it is just cosmetic stuff um but not being happy with them uh and then two weeks later go okay well, i've made another batch and these ones are much better than the last one but i'm going to sell them for exactly the same price like it's one thing if it's you know doing a a product and then there is an improvement on the product and you're selling it for the for um a bit more or whatever and it's it's like a year later but i feel like going eh, this batch isn't perfect but i'm still going to charge full whack like that i think that's more what i was getting at right that reminds me of going to the potter's place near you steve yeah um i don't recall who the artist is or what the collective is there but um we got a couple of their seconds you know the the ones that just aren't quite up to their standards and they're way more affordable right but that doesn't seem like something that I mean, your example of these slides, like slight defect on one versus slight defect or, or not so happy with 20. Yeah. Do they all become at a certain point seconds or where you're like, okay, now you're Individuals, in production mode. <laughs> yeah. And you're, you're like, okay, I did, I, I worked on 15, 10 of them came out great. Five of them are slightly substandard. So you, yeah you sell them as seconds. Well, that's your choice to say those aren't worth the the quality standard that I set or, or the highest yeah. quality ones that I produce are obviously worth more. Yeah. But it, from my perspective, the, the pottery that we were looking at, like I bought my mom a seconds mug and it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. <laughs> and I could not tell the difference between that and the other. So that is absolutely on the artist to be able to say, it's up to my quality standards or not. Yeah. I appreciate that you are morally focused or your, your compass is pointing in the right direction to say, like, if it's substandard to me, it is substandard to my audience. Mm -hmm. But I do feel like there are opportunities for people to be like, I may never use that knife, but I want to own one of the pieces that you create. I can't pay you 120, but I could give you $50 tomorrow. Yeah. I think um, that's a really good uh, way of putting it because, again, going back to the pans, we have pans that we sell as seconds. Um, 
purely because of uh, issues with the manufacturing process. So, you know, like I was talking about earlier on with the finger marks, like if one has a finger mark on it, it's not going to affect the functionality of the pan at all. And the first time you use the pan, it will completely remove that mark because you you completely change the the look of the pan as soon as it's used. Um, but we still sell sell them as seconds. Um, and yeah, they have a, a slight uh, knockdown of price. So I guess maybe that that's a better question. You know, uh, um, can 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 you sell a an entire batch and say, well, actually, I'm not happy with this batch. This is all seconds. But like, at, at what point do you? Uh, go from this being i suppose it's that um uh there was a uh, analogy that you used to use in uh like a social care setting where between um your your self-esteem your self-worth and your self-image and when they all kind of line up and and how they affect each other and i guess that there's a similar sort of thing with your products like yet there's the this is where i want to be this is where i am and you know this is where this this product sits and if that product is not level with your your view of where you should be right now then do you you know does that then instantly become a second and how do you um how do you how do you judge where where that is and, and what your um what your quality is i mean this, this this is all very internal facing though what about expectations you know what about the, the your customers? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know that the people will be co- come to expect a certain level of standard. Um, I bought some fucking completely random, but some mayonnaise the other day, <laughs> and it was really like dark yellow, and it was yeah. just like standard like Hellman's mayonnaise, world around. You know, yeah. consistent the 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 White benchmark the for, yeah. for 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 mayonnaise. And it was really dark yellow on the shelf, and I was like. Obviously, this is something to do with the production, or mm. the chickens have been fed something with more carroty, and I have no idea. Um, yeah. And it put me off. I'm sure it was obviously fine, tastes exactly the same, passed the same strict, you know, testing yeah. stringent standards. And they will have people at Hellman's going, "Yeah, that's fine. Send it out." They've probably got a fucking Pantone book going, "Yeah, that's fine. Send it out." But yeah. this this was allowed to go out. Um, but I could see on shelf that nobody was picking it up because there's the yeah. entire batch and all the other little bottles that still had the white Hellman's in had all been taken. And this batch, for some reason, people were dismissing. Yeah. So this whole conversation is very much about like, I think it's worth this. I'm proud of this, my personal opinion. But also there's the flip side of who's going to buy it. What are they expecting? Are you completely missing the mark? Do people give a fuck about the slight imperfections on your slide knives at all? Exactly. <laughs> well, so, when I was building computers in that custom store, at the time, uh, AMD processors had just crossed the gig threshold. So they were really, really hot processors, and they're really, really big. And we had a problem with them having thermal issues. And I knew because I designed all the systems, remember. I was in charge of all product designing. And so I was putting out a lot of these computers, and our return rate on them was just higher. It was just higher than what they should have been. Mm. And I it was like passing Steve's eye test. It just, they weren't, they weren't what I wanted to sell. Yeah. And at some point I decided to cut AMD from our line completely. 
and it made a lot of people mad. They were just, they were AMD fans and they were just <laughs> like, why you're a custom computer store. Why can't we buy these things from you? And I said, I'll, I'll make you a deal. I'm going to go ahead and put your AMD computer right here. And we're going to run it without the case on. I'm going to put my Intel computer over here. And while they're both running, I'm going to take the cooling units off both processors, <laughs> right? Mine is going to shut itself off safely. Yours is going to smoke. And they're like, you're crazy. You wouldn't do that. I'm like, I will bet you a thousand dollar video card. that mine will survive. <laughs> Right. Cause if I'm right, then yeah. I give you a thousand dollar video card. And if I'm wrong, you're out a thousand dollar computer. Yeah. Right. And so that you need to buy a new one and so nobody would take the bet. Not a single gamer who would come in would take my bet. <laughs> but that right there speaks worlds to what you're talking about, Steve, which is the eye quality. They knew what they were doing was wrong, and they knew what they were doing was dangerous. But they chose to go down that road anyway because of whatever personal feelings they had as the customer, regardless of the science in front of their mind. Yeah. Right? Well, that, that's, that, so, that's, the, that's the biggest thing, though, about, about branding. Is people right. you're you're lying to yourself all the time. People prefer the taste of Pepsi. It's scientifically proven, but well, they will lie to themselves when they see a Coke label. So I chose to axe that customer base from my services. Like I let them walk away. <laughs> but my return rates and my computers went through the floor. Yeah. Right. And yeah. suddenly we have have an established reputation for quality of product, all because of that eye test. I think that's yeah. a that's a really good shout, Alva. You you having a say in who 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 is the end user of your product as well? Yeah. So actually right. saying I, I don't want to sell to you is yeah. is a powerful tool, and I think it's something that we've we've all forgotten that you have a right to 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 choose your customers as well as they yeah. have they have a right <laughs> to choose you as customers. I think that's something that um, uh, Johnny Allen on the um, uh, the 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 knife maker he 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 yeah. bespoke bloke. He's like. Um, constantly telling stories about knives he's made for people who just don't understand or don't respect or don't look after them. Yeah. And it's like, you don't need those, you don't need those people as customers. Yeah. Like Al says, fucking cut them loose. That they're not, they're not helping you. They're not going to recommend your products. They're not going to be repeat customers. So I think it's a really powerful tool to, to be able to, to you have that to dictate who you want to sell to as well. Yeah. I mean, that, that's one of the things that we're going through with, uh, with the forge at the moment is, I mean, we, we've always done it. Um, at festivals and events and markets when we've been there if someone's picked up one of the axes and if they say oh fucking hell i could get one at being and q for a fiver just take the the item off and go okay go i'm not interested in selling to you like there's there's no point even trying to convince them because they're not they're not the people that we're trying to sell to um but i I think going back to what you were saying though, Al, like about the fact that yes, it, it's down to the customer, but the first, the first kind of stage, like to me, yes, hundred percent, the customer should be deciding whether or not they buy it. But I should be deciding whether I feel that's good enough to let the customer make that decision. So that that first, mm. like the first quality control, the first check is is with me, and if I'm not happy with it, then I have to. I have a moral responsibility to let that customer know that actually, like like Brett said, this is a second. It is perfectly functional, but you know the grind line's not even, or <laughs> there's uh, a nick taken out of here, or the tang is slightly wonky, or whatever. Like, I I have that um, 
that um, obligation to my customers because I want to set expectations. I want them to know that actually, if they're if they're paying full price, and if I'm saying, yeah, this is this is one hundred and twenty dollars for this whatever, that they're getting one hundred and twenty dollars worth of um, product. I love that's thing. like just the benchmark price now for all knives. Yeah, one hundred twenty dollars. We did an entire episode about it. Yeah. <laughs> there you go, Al. There's your thumbnail. It's just Alex uh, holding a hundred and twenty dollar bill. Yes, <laughs> I, think, I think I think expectation is a really powerful word. Yeah, there, Steve. It uh, is. Across the board, from from everything that Alex is saying in terms of what you expect as you develop a product to what you expect to see as the final thing, you know that that um, quality control to what the customers expecting to what you expect to take home at the end of the day, at the end of the month, at the end of the year. I think I think expectations is so powerful, more so than like standards, because I yeah. think standards are subjective. Whereas expectations, like, well, this is not what I thought was going to happen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's it's a weird one because it's it's um, your expectations are so so much more fluid than standards. You know, your your standard is very static. The standard is, you know, this computer will run this game and not overheat. That, that that's that's our base standard. The expectation is it will be able to run the latest games mm-hmm. and it won't overheat, or if it does, it will shut itself down safely or whatever. Like and yeah, I think expectations like the expectation from uh our customers is in like the the uh the forge is that they're going, they're always going to receive a, a quality product, and if there is any imperfection, that it will either be caught by us. Like th- their expectation is, because we hand assemble everything, we'll see the imperfections first, and we'll say, actually, that's that's not up to standard. Like that's the expectation that they have that that, that we will sort through it, and that we will pick out those seconds, and that it's not down to them to say, actually, this isn't quite right. Can I uh, can I pay less? It's mm. it's our responsibility. Does that make sense? Yeah, yes. but it, and it's also it's also built over time, so expectations yeah. um, mature as well. So if if you if you establish that base, or, or people start to know know what you're um, famous for, you know, there's there's expect, expectations become more ingrained. Yeah. Whereas if just a random thing is like, oh, do you like this? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what was, what was I expecting. <laughs> well, the the thing that I would end on with expectations is, you know. There's a clear difference between having expectations for yourself and expectations for your things, mm. right? Yeah. Like there are certain certain people on this planet that we have expectations that they have to be perfect all the time, like airline pilots. We expect <laughs> a perfect airline pilot, and we should for very good reason, right? But they go through their own rigorous training. We trust them to be able to make those decisions and do so and keep us all safe in the air. When we have expectations for ourselves, the piece that that I like to remember is that the plans that you make in the future always dictate what your expectations are going to be. And it's how far in the future that you can plan, to me, is my own personal levels of success. So can I plan for tomorrow? Can I plan for next week? Can I plan for next month? Can I I plan? I have no idea about this concept. Right. (laughs) And it, it's it's for the further out you can plan, right? And the, you can manage your own expectations accordingly. Sure, things can change, and sure you can be agile and move on the fly. 
but it is a wonderful, wonderful thing. The minute you can actually sit down and go, wow, I can actually see the next year in front of me. Yeah. I am. Um, yeah. I, I really like that. Um, I think from a kind of a maker perspective, like with regards to um, expectations, um, it's going back to what we were saying just now about the, the the standards. Like the standard is to me the 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 min, the MVP. It's the minimum viable product should meet those standards. But the expectation is that it should go beyond that. Um, and, Can we come and up with you, a different initialization for minimum viable products? Because <laughs> MVP means something completely different to me. Because <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you're literally talking about the shit at the bottom of the barrel, and an MVP to me is like the best player in the game. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> it's confusing, um, Steve. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, all right, whatever. But like the the. <laughs> The, the the your Lowest standard common denominator. Yeah, your Thank standard you. should be the the absolute bare minimum that it, you know that you you're able to put out or that you're willing to put out. Yeah, but the expectation is that you should always exceed that. Um, and one of the wonderful things about being uh, makers and and having such close relationships, like being small sellers, like we all are. Um, and having those really close relationships with your customers as opposed to a big corporation that's just a, a faceless um, money-grabbing organization is you get to set those expectations and you in a very, very real sense um, because you can do that through conversations, through face-to-face interactions or whatever. Um, and being able to get those, get, ugh, being able to set those expectations, that's what makes us spiffing. Uh, Al, have you got an order? Yeah, it's bars. Bars. Uh, Which which one's Brett's Brett's first? I'm going first. You're going first. Oh, golly. You always put me on the spot. So, uh, doing the tedious work that I've been doing recently, I've had the old audiobooks running as usual. And if anybody else is a fan of HP Lovecraft books or anything in that vein, um, and has Audible or or wants to get some audiobooks, I'm sure it's available plenty of places. But um, I found the entire the entire collection on audiobook, and it was one credit for me on Audible. Um, by the HP Lovecraft Historical Society. It's just called the HP Lovecraft The Complete Collection. Or, sorry, HP Lovecraft The Complete Collection. Um, the narrators are the two gentlemen that started the Historical Foundation or the Historical Society, and they actually are fantastic narrators. One of the guys <laughs> absolutely has a voice made for storytelling and does a great job. Um, I think they played it the as well. <laughs> That would be pretty amazing to hear him talk about uh, Cthulhu or the Alchemist. Um, it's been really enjoyable, and for me, uh, I I wish I had a little bit more time. Or sorry, no, I shouldn't make that excuse. I wish I had the perseverance to sit down and, and get through a book. But audiobooks have been super, super helpful for me. 
uh, keeps my mind off of things, especially in the heat in the forge and whatnot. And yeah, I've, I've always had a fondness for HP Lovecraft. So if anybody else is interested, it's a lot for very little. <laughs> One credit for 50 hours of book reading is great. <laughs> the only other stuff that works like that is like, you got to get the entire Harry Potter collection or something like that. And you may, <laughs> may start to get into like the twenties and thirties of hours. Yeah. Uh, no, good shout. I like yeah. that. Um, Although, if you are going to do uh, entire collections, I've not found the entire collection yet, but I've been listening to a lot of Nigel Planer reading uh, Terry Pratchett, and that's oh, also nice. fantastic because each each one's that's like 10, 10 hours long, and right. the Nigel Planer ones are really really good because he does the characters really well. Um, but uh, yeah, there's fucking thousands of Pratchett well, books. Seriously, the Harry Potter ones are great. If if you're not even that big of a fan, uh, Jim Dale makes all of it a hundred times better. He is the narrator, and he is just the best. He does voices for every character and never misses a beat. <laughs> fucking amazing! I've listened nice. to those books like five or six times. They're great. Cool. Uh, right. In which case, ah, yes. next. Correct. I don't you know picked, which one you picked. It was the A with the the, the sort of Danish umlaut on the top of it. Um, <laughs> it's probably not called an umlaut. Sorry to anyone who's Danish. Um, yes, I, I'm sure I've spiffed this before, but you guys said I haven't, so I can't rely on my own memory. Um, it's a book called Black Box Thinking, um, and it is um, it's essentially about. It, it was basically a callback to Al, Al's point earlier about uh, airline pilots, and then we need to have. Rather stringent uh, quality standards and <laughs> expectations of what a, a, um, a pilot is capable of, but also there's there's much deeper um, e evaluation and assessment that goes into the the aviation industry um, yeah. for obvious reasons, um, and <laughs> the 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 kind of thinking that goes into it is is all based on kind of failures. It's learning from failures, so it's about um, creative thinking. Uh, subjecting ideas to, to 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 failure and testing them over and over again, and and finding out where the problems are and solving them, uh, and that's why you know it's one of the safest ways to travel because this industry is so stringently tested all the time. Um, and yeah. the, the 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 analogy of the book is about applying that same thinking to um, the medical profession and why is the 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 thought process that goes into the avi aviation industry not implemented in uh, uh, yeah, why doctors don't do the same thing. So when doctors make a mistake, they don't learn from the mistake. They try and point the blame, and they try yeah. and find out that oh, it's not my fault. Blah blah blah. It was this point. It was this drug. Instead of yeah. everyone being objective, holding their hands up and going, "We learn from our mistake. Let's move on. Let's make the medical profession better." Um, like the aviation industry, and it's a really fantastic analogy, and it, much deeper than that. And it, it kind of extends into how you can be successful in. But whatever your profession, whatever your trade is, um, by applying the same middle of thinking, um, and it's uh, it's 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 a it's kind of dry. The book um, it's by Matthew Syed, um, who's like a great like business thinker and, and kind of um, thought leadership piece. Uh, but I suggest I suggest you read it. It's a really good book. Black yeah. box thinking, pun intended. It makes you think outside the box, um, uh, and it yeah it it just made me reflect on my own evaluation of problem solving um by 
embracing mistakes instead of hiding from them. Yeah, no, that's a, a great um, a great shout. We actually, uh, there's one of the things when I was working for Just Eat, um, that was very much their culture there is mm. complete, Don't doesn't matter whose fault it was, let's yeah. find out why and let's stop it from happening again. Um, and it, it just made things go so much better. Um, so yeah, that's a good shout. Uh, other Al, what about you? Uh, I'm going to shout out the Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande. I know I butchered that name. But, <laughs> uh, the Checklist Manifesto is really, it's, you can, it's really short. You can kill it in an afternoon. Um, but it's really all about the importance of checklists and really where they come <laughs> from. And it sounds you know, silly at first until you get into these crazy stories it, that he writes about you know, why a checklist exists in the airline industry. Like, where did it come from? How did they first implement it and why? Um, the idea of building a skyscraper. How do you possibly achieve such a thing? <laughs> and it's just this running, you know, list of like the importance of checklists throughout the, uh, the entire thing. And, and it brings it home where you'd be able to say, even to your own daily life, why checklists are important. And then, you know, expand that all the way up to changing the world. I mean, even even when you say that, Al, um, a penny just dropped in my head that when I think of a checklist for my own personal sort of um, day-to-day use, which I don't have, believe it or not, <laughs> um, but if I did, I'd have a checklist and it would be, be like a shopping list. Did I get the milk? Did mm-hmm. I get the eggs? But actually, when you think about it systematically from like uh, something like building a skyscraper or an airline, it's fucking in order. Yeah, it's a list, and it's deliberately in order for that reason. So even now, I'm reevaluating. Like, if I have a shopping list, surely it should be in an order. So as I go around the supermarket, yeah, I'm getting things in the most efficient way possible. Or if I'm doing something on a daily basis, I should be ticking things off that then lead to the next thing. So yeah. already, but- without even reading the book, just hearing you say it. <laughs> has helped me immensely. <laughs> yeah. like, I loved your last video when you did the insomnia hack. Yeah. Because the very first thing you did is you popped up your plan on the screen and go, look, we have limited materials. This has yeah. to be planned out right. Yeah. And then yeah. you show the drawing and all of your logic and the physics and all of the thinking that go into it. And then you draw out the plans and you build it to spec. Yeah. That was your checklist. Yeah. It was, well, yeah, because yeah, and, and it wouldn't have worked if I, did, if I didn't do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, well, that was pure chance. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's a great shout. I mean, like, I I know Jazz absolutely fucking loves a uh, a list of uh, <laughs> stuff that she can check off. Like her entire day functions around lists. She goes into work and like the first thing she does is writes an A four page or two of things that she needs to achieve that day. Um, but yeah, I think like the, the point of writing them in order as well because. Fuck yeah! The amount of times I've been round a, a shop, got to the end of the, end of the uh, like last aisle, and gone, ah, oh, fuck! I need bananas or whatever. Yeah, I right need bananas beginning. and apples. Oh, back yeah. Go. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, but that's you don't need bananas because the shit. I fucking love bananas. Al doesn't want a banana. Full of potassium. Um, it's me next. Fuck. Uh, yes. I am also going to spiff a book. Um, the author is a guy called AC Grayling, who is a British philosopher. Um, I am 90% sure that the book I'm thinking of is uh, The Form of Things. 
but he did a whole series of uh, books. It's like the form of things, uh, the reason of things, and the something else of things. Um, the the famous or the the most popular two books that he's got are the Good Book and Ideas That Matter. But somewhere in um, I think it is in the form of things. And for the shows, I will try and find the actual essay. Um, but he wrote an essay on beauty um, and what beauty is, and, and you know the fact that it's subjective and, and all of this. Um, and it was a fucking brilliant book that had a uh, a genuine impact on how I, um, or sorry, gen- a fucking brilliant essay and had a genuine impact on how I um, view beauty and, and my opinion of, of, of beautiful things. Um, and I just, I really like the way he writes. I, I really like a lot of the stuff that he does write. Um, that's not to say that I agree with everything he says, but I, uh, yeah, I have a lot of time for Mr. Grayling. So if you can check him out, uh, I'm pretty sure any of his um, his books are going to be good. Uh, but I think I've I've covered off enough time for Al to rejoin the Hangout. So uh, yeah, let's go on to any other Probably business. <laughs> <laughs> I I kind of paused. Yeah, I kind of had to pause halfway through because I could see uh, you you'd frozen. But uh, right, is there book. any other business? Uh, yeah, I've, I've, I want to give a shout out to my boy Jigsy. That's all. Keep it up. Okay, cool. Uh, Brett, anything from you? Uh, I hope everybody enjoyed listening to the guy I've been friends with longest in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Alex has been a constant source of wisdom and, and always will bend an ear to pretty much anybody that asks him for it. So I appreciate you coming on here, Alex. And I, I hope that it was helpful because it always has been for me. Amen. Right back. And I'll still say your post vice video is one of the most beautiful things on the internet. (laughs) It's true. Nice. Uh, Right. Uh, Alex, anything from you before we go? Any last thoughts or anything? You can say no, it's fine. Oh, just thank you so much for your time. It's always a pleasure like talking with you guys. And you know, it's I like talking about business and ideas and expectations and people in general. So anytime that you guys want to talk more, you really want to get into the weeds on a deep idea or business philosophy, feel free to bring me back on. I'd love to talk more. Nice. Um yeah, I like that. And thank you ever so much for coming on. This has been really good. It's been a good chat. Um I did have an AOB, but I've forgotten where it was. So uh, if you want to find us on social media, you can find us in all of the usual social media places. You can find me at Moonshine Metalworks. You can find Brett at Skull and Spade 13. And you can find Al, this Al, at Al You point to the screen. Nobody knows which Al you're pointing at. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Everyone knows. Everyone, everyone knows. I was actually. Uh, um, <laughs> so it was really enthusiastic. <laughs> can we find? Can we find you anywhere, Alex? Uh, you can find the, my business website is streetertech.com. Um, and that's really it. Thank you. Oh, sure. and the, you should know the the video on streetertech.com was shot by Brett. <sighs> ah, oh. nice. Oh, how about that branding? How about that branding? Amazing. Fantastic. Uh, cool. In which case, uh, oh, and yeah, you can find us fools with tools internet. Um, yeah, we'll see you next week. We love you all. Goodbye.
Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.